Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Thank you. Slava Ukraine! Shalom. Vladimir Zelensky is in Brussels. It's part of a whirlwind tour across Europe, just the second time the Ukrainian president has left his country since the Russian invasion nearly a year ago. In an address to the European Parliament on Thursday morning, he emphasized the importance of a European future for Ukraine. Before his trip to Brussels, Zelensky visited Paris, meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on Wednesday night. And in the UK, he met with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, where he pleaded with Britain to supply his country with fighter jets. I appeal to you and the world with simple and yet most important words. Combat aircrafts for Ukraine, wings for freedom. It's also a plea that Zelensky repeated privately with EU leaders in Brussels on Thursday. But as Zelensky finishes his first trip to Brussels since the invasion, will the risk of this in-person meeting be worth it? Will countries come through with the weapons Ukraine wants? And will they give Ukraine a real shot at EU membership? not just more talk and verbal niceties. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent, and we are coming to you today from the European Council headquarters in Brussels. It's a grand building at the Schumann Roundabout under a giant atrium, and the place is full of hundreds of journalists. They are here to cover the emergency. It was already called an extraordinary meeting of EU leaders. It really is extraordinary, though, because we've had a a special guest visitor, and that is Volodymyr Zelensky, who's still in the building as we speak. So to try and unpack what's going on at this week's summit and, of course, all the news around Zelensky's visit, I'm joined by uh, some of our team here in the building. Clea Calcutt, who's here from Paris. Hi, Clea. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you here. Barbara Munns, our senior trade correspondent. Hi, Suzanne. And Jacobo Baragazzi, our senior diplomatic correspondent. Hi, Suzanne. 
So what a week it's been, Clea. I mean, we started this week, I was in Kiev last week on Friday for the European visit there with President von der Leyen from the Commission and President Michel from the Council. They met with Zelensky. We were there at the, at the press conference and none of us got a hint that this visit would be happening. And then on Monday, it began to leak out here that there was talk of a Zelensky visit. Then we heard he arrived in London Wednesday morning, but then to Paris. Clea, you were at the Elysee last night, Wednesday night. Tell us more about that. Well, it was uh, quite an odd day yesterday because there was a lot of sort of hesitation and rumours flying around about whether Zelensky was going to turn up in, in Paris or not. And, and as the images started to stream out of London, it became clear that it was a political necessity for Macron to have Zelensky in Paris. And I mean, we were told that the meeting yesterday evening, so you had Olaf Scholz, Emmanuel Macron, Volodymyr Zelensky in Paris was hastily arranged. And that was for security reasons. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's quite obvious that having Zelensky have red carpet treatment in London, meeting King Charles III, doing a, a massive speech in front of the Westminster Hall, kind of sort of um, shed a bit of a, a bad light on a non-visit if there were, wasn't going to be a visit in, in Paris. And so as we were sort of gearing up for his arrival, because it started to leak in the middle of the afternoon that he was going to come to Paris, it was obvious that everybody was rushing around, scrambling in the background to try and create a moment in Paris. And so at one point on the table, there was going to be a ceremony at the military institution, the Invalide for Zelensky. And at the last minute, it was cancelled because obviously they couldn't fit it in. He turned up at 10 o'clock in the evening for dinner, which obviously is a little bit late. Even, even by, for the French. Even for the French, you know, but I think they managed to what they what they wanted to do was to project sort of European unity, having Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron. Obviously, missing out one person this morning who was quite upset. Well, exactly. Uh, the Italian leader uh, Giorgia Maloney just this morning, at Thursday morning here in Brussels, she had something to say about this. Isn't that right, Jacopo? About this dinner a deux à trois. Uh, with Zelensky, Schultz and Macron, but no Italy. Yeah, she was upset because she wasn't invited. Guardi, francamente, mi è sembrata più inopportuna più inopportuno l'invito a Zelensky di ieri, perché credo che la forza, la nostra forza in questa vicenda sia l'unità e la compattezza. But uh, she was also reacting to some pictures today in Italian press that were showing that uh, when Schultz and Macron went to Kiev in June on board uh, of a train where in that moment it was also the then Prime Minister Mario Draghi. And so the comparison between the ah. two pictures uh, was pretty telling. Is and she uh, suggesting sexism or that you know, she's no, not being no, treated she's the same not as suggesting Draghi? Treating, uh, sex, uh, any kind of... Uh, what is the problem is the problem that it started with migration in November. And yeah. the, the relationship between uh, Italy and Paris and, uh, and France remains complicated. Yeah, that's interesting that those tensions between France and Italy mm. we saw at the beginning of Meloni's uh, premier uh, we'll yeah. come back to migration uh, later on the podcast because that is on the agenda today. Barbara, what do you think about the fact that Zelensky chose to go to Britain first? I mean, do you think that has been a bit of a... Are people a bit miffed around here or what do you make of that decision? I think what's most telling in the comparison is not per se the fact that he got to London first, but the fact that the visit to Brussels leaked, mm. right, because of the institutional rivalries to come out with something first, whereas the visit to London was actually a big surprise to yeah. everyone. And so that comparison obviously doesn't make the EU look 
great, especially because the reason that this visit was kept a secret is because of security reasons. And I mean, imagine that something would happen during this visit just because of, you know, officials trying to outcompete each other to reporters and leaking the news of this visit. Yeah, Jacobo, I mean, we were covering that this week, yourself, myself, all our, our journalistic colleagues. I mean, we as a profession, we like leaks. That's what we live. Of course. Li- we we live them. by, we love them. But this was even by the standard of Brussels. It was quite a leak. I mean, there was a lot of consternation here in the European Council, where we are now, about where this leak come from. A lot of fingers pointing to the European Parliament. Yes, but at the same time, uh, there are two views. One is, oh, as usual, the European Parliament is too leaky. The other view is, oh, but just because the Council wanted to be the one breaking the story. Uh, yesterday, there was a joke, uh, the Commission was saying, oh, but you know, at the end, look at the, the capitals he visited. He visited the capitals that can provide him with jets. So start with London and then Paris. Here, Brussels is not about jets, and so they were trying to put it from in this perspective and that this visit was different from the other two. But at the same time, yes, the story was pretty embarrassing. Yeah, and that brings us on uh, to the substance of his visit here today as we, we sit here at the European Council recording this on Thursday afternoon. And that is the point there you raise, Jacopo. Really, you know, the EU is not a military power. Its job is not to give more tanks, give more jets to Ukraine. That is the prerogative and the decision of individual member states. But, as we know, since the start of this war in Ukraine, the EU has other functions, and that includes being a hugely important economic bloc. So we have seen the EU come forward with sanctions package after sanctions package, and we heard today that there will be a 10th sanction package coming by February 24th, the anniversary of the invasion, but also the idea of EU membership. Last week on the podcast, we talked about this, about the Ukrainian Prime Minister's interview with us in Politico, saying he wanted a two-year timeline. Look, I mean, what's the sense people get here? Do you think the EU can give Zelensky what he wants in terms of EU accession? Yeah, I think there was a big disparity in the beginning. The fact that, you know, Ukraine, both when you were in Kiev last week, made it very clear what they want. And they made it clear again yesterday with, you know, top Ukrainian advisors saying, you know, we don't come here for this political symbolism or for whatever. What we need is weapons very soon, right, on the battlefield. And we need money and we need a clear guideway to Ukraine accession to the EU. And then you have EU officials who are very much stressing the fact that just the fact that he's here is politically important, kind of raising awareness, just the fact that the commission went to Ukraine was important apart from, you know, any deliverables, etc. So I think there's a clear difference between the two sides. And yesterday in in these briefings that we have kind of ahead of the European Council, you know, one of the reporters asked someone, you know, can he actually leave without something concrete in terms of weapon, in terms of money whatsoever? And that person replied, yes, of course, he can just leave with the plane that he came here with. So a very mm. cynical answer, but it's kind of, it shows the difference between the two sides. And Zelensky was asked that during his press conference this afternoon with Michel and von der Leyen, and he made it clear, and actually he broke into English for one of the few times to say, yes, 2023, this year, he would like the accession talks to begin. And that's why, of course, we need it this year. And this year, Charles, when I say this year, I mean this year. I mean, there's <laughs> 2023. Two, two I, I feel very well the responsibility to get unanimity in the European Council, which will do our best. <laughs> And we heard then from Charles Michel, the European Council president, very clearly saying that the European Council, the EU leaders, would come back to the issue at the end of the year after the European Commission has given its verdict, its update, if you like, on the Ukrainian application, and that's expected in the autumn. But there is a reality. The reality is that in the last 10 years, there hasn't been any new member state. Actually, there has been one member state that has left. 
So the reality is that in the last 10 years is the first time since the start of the EU that we have 10 years without a new member yeah. state. And I mean, as we know, France has been one of the countries, actually, Claire, who would, which has been, you know, privately, they won't maybe say it that publicly, but in reality over the last few years have been one of the countries that have been more opposed to the idea of enlargement. There was a sense of enlargement fatigue, particularly after 2004, that big wave of countries that came in. I mean, how do you think that meeting, though, went between Macron? It was powerful symbolism, Claire, on Wednesday night and then Thursday morning seeing Macron and Zelensky take that plane and, and land here in Brussels. It was really, you know, even by, you know, by the standards of political intrigue and drama, it was quite theatrical and it was, it was quite moving, really. Yeah, no, I think there was definitely some uh, some powerful images coming out of Paris and then again in Brussels. I mean, if you contrast with the meeting in Kiev where, you know, Macron went over there and, and you could see that there was quite a lot of tension slightly between Macron and Zelensky, probably due to the fact that Macron has been was making these comments about, you know, trying to keep an open door to Russia and dialogue and, and so forth. You didn't see that yesterday. You see quite clearly, obviously, uh, one of the points of tensions between them is that Ukraine wants jets. France has fighter jets. France can give these fighter jets. You know, there's no sort of export problem with France. So it could just hand them over now. There would be no issue that we saw with the with the Leopard. France doesn't want to do that yet. But, you you know, the messaging coming out of France at the moment is very much, you know, we're behind Ukraine. We are behind, you know, uh, we're going to help it until victory. And so, you know, in terms of the, the sort of mood music, it was very positive, very close between the two. And as we were saying there, I mean, that discussion about jet is the next big thing for Ukraine. As Zelensky's having these meetings with prime ministers, including Meloni from Italy. And he has said, he said that on Thursday afternoon that he, he was going to raise this issue with them. We see kind of with that message from London, Rishi Sunak saying that Britain would help train Ukrainian pilots. Not saying, though, that they're ready to send those jets. So, I mean, this is really going to be the big theme for the next few weeks. Before we move on, though, Barbara, there was also, we got some detail from von der Leyen about the EU's next sanction package. That's the 10th sanctions package. It's quite technical, but we got a bit of detail from her on what to expect on that. Yeah, indeed. And it came as a bit of a surprise because the goal was to get this ahead of the February 24th anniversary. EU countries have not been briefed yet on the content of the package, but still von der Leyen gave some details now, standing next to the Ukrainian president so it would hit disinformation more and there would be more expert controls and there would be more people targeted in that sanctions package. First, we will impose sanctions on a number of political and military leaders, but also, dear Volodymyr, we listened very carefully to your messages when we visited you last week in Kiev. We will target Putin's propagandists because their lies are poisoning the public space in Russia and abroad. You were insisting on that. We hear you. We will follow up. And we're going after them. Secondly, the package will include additional exports ban worth more, more than 10 billion euros. This will further starve Russia's military machine and continue to shake the foundation of its economy. 
Last week Zelensky, for example, was talking about maybe some of the individuals uh, linked with the nuclear company Rosatom in Russia. They've been talking about other individuals that they want to yeah, hit. Exactly. And so Rosatom is very sensitive for a number of countries, including Hungary. So now they are thinking about how to get around Hungary mm. and to target maybe not the CEO of Rosatom, but other people um, with that company. And just explain to us, why is it such a sensitive issue, the Rosatom issue, for some countries, including Hungary? Rosatom is very sensitive because Hungary is dependent of Russian nuclear components for its energy. Um, And so Hungary has made very clear from the beginning that when it came to energy, you saw the same with the discussions about oil, that it does not want to hit Russian energy through the European sanctions because it's so dependent. Okay, great. Well, we'll keep an eye on your reporting on that in the run-up to the February 24th anniversary. We're now going to take a quick pause and we'll be back with discussion on migration and EU competitiveness. They're the other two big issues EU leaders are discussing today. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Moving on, even though I have to say the atmosphere here, people are still kind of abuzz with the presence of Zelensky in the building, with all the security here, helicopters over overhead. We've just got a, an internal email that people in our office now can't leave by the main door, our political office here in Brussels. But there are other things on the agenda. And the two other issues are the economy and the reaction, the European reaction to the Biden climate plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, and also migration. On the economy, Barbara, you've been covering this. And we were writing, yourself, myself and some other colleagues, um, we have a piece out today about is this going to be 25 member states versus two. In a nutshell, France and Germany have been very much in favour of the plan to loosen European state aid rules uh, because they believe that this is a good way to counter what they see as unfair trade practices by America. But the other countries are not happy. Yes, exactly. So a lot of other countries are actually worried that, especially the French, are using the Inflation Reduction Act and the high energy prices as an excuse to kind of push through their own domestic French economic agenda, more protectionism, more state aid, more subsidies. And 
now that Germany is kind of on the same line when it comes to state aid flexibilization, there's a big fear that, you know, once Paris and Berlin are on the same line, that the rest just kind of gets pushed to this side. So that will be a big part of the discussion. Mm. The goal is that there would be, you know, a second part of this economic discussion. So first we will have state aid, but then there would also be more European money to make sure that it's not just the countries with the deepest pockets mm. that can support their economies. But given that that second part is more of kind of, you know, a process for the next coming months, a lot of other countries fear that we will just have the state aid discussion now and then remains to be seen what will happen with the second part of the discussion. But it's interesting, I was speaking to a senior diplomat yesterday from a country, a kind of free trade believer, who made the point it was a country with which does have plenty of fiscal space. It's not that it doesn't have deep pockets, but is against this idea in principle. There's a lot of fear here that the French protectionism is winning the day when it comes to this. Claire, what are they saying in Paris? The French are <laughs> delighted at the French, this development. The French, uh, yes, they feel that they've kind of got the wind in their sails, that their sort of vision is, you know, being adopted by different countries. I mean, particularly Germany, not all aspects of the French vision, but some aspects. And for them, it's um, if you say something like, oh, it's only going to benefit France and, and Germany, they can't see it. I mean, all they see is that Europe as a, as a bloc is falling behind the US and that this is a golden opportunity to basically pour money into clean tech and nothing should stop us now and basically if uh, you know obviously France has its own industrial problems it really needs to boost its own industry so this is a golden opportunity for it to try and help its own industry by making a pledge for the whole of the EU and um, I think it really is like a, a clash of visions for them they do not see how giving money, giving state subsidies, loosening state subsidy rules are detrimental to mm. maybe creating a stronger industrial base yeah. in Europe. And this is all happening during the Swedish presidency of the Council of yeah. the EU, right? Really the core believers of free trade. Maybe one last thing is what is interesting in this debate is that what we had, the, really the reaction to the US and kind of going against the US, that debate has kind of gone away. Mm. Now they're very much more, okay, we have to work together with the US when it comes to clean tech, the green economy, even more going, you know, it's us, the West going against China, China. to make sure that we win this economic, also on the economic front in mm. terms of green industry. This is one of those discussions where sometimes I wonder what would sound like if we hadn't had Brexit, if yeah. the UK yeah. was still in, I believe that this old debate would have been completely different. Absolutely, because this the UK was such a, a believer in free markets and anti-protectionist voice. the size and the methods and the political technique to yeah. actually change this debate. As without the Brits in, yesterday was with a diplomat who was saying how skilled were the Brits exactly on this kind of debate, yeah. and driving it and managing. The French say the same. They, uh, they say, I don't know why they left. They were so good at it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the single market, they were a big believer in that. They the built economic, it. Yeah, Many, those are the key officials who yeah. built the single market were British officials at the Commission. Yeah, I know. It, and and uh, it's, it's, you know, those free trade bloc, those free traders, basically the Nordics, Ireland, the Netherlands, mm. you know, they've lost a big ally there. And now you've got the big countries like France and Germany. Even though, I think, it didn't, you mentioned there, like the real debate is going to start when they talk about EU money, new EU money. Yeah. So, you know, the implication is that France and Germany are saying, don't worry about this because we're going to have an EU sovereignty fund. 
in fact, when they start talking about an EU sovereignty fund, we know that Germany doesn't want to issue new EU money. That debate was had during, you guys were covering this, during the COVID uh, pandemic. By the, and by the time the fund will be announced, will, they will be working on it, will be so close to European elections. That yeah. is exactly like migration, you know, they, they are kicking the can on these issues. And when we, the closer we get to the European elections, the more it becomes difficult then to really think that these kind of things can happen. Now, finally, migration. You pivoted nicely there, uh, Jacopo, to the final issue on the agenda at this summit. And by the way, as we speak to you now, we still don't know if the summit is going to end in the early hours of Friday morning, if leaders will be permitted to go home to bed. We know there's hotel rooms booked all over the city and come back on Friday. But but anyway, so whenever you're listening to this, uh, these things are very much in flux. But migration, that is a topic on the agenda. It's the first time in a while that EU leaders have discussed this issue. In a broad way, yes. Uh, I mean, this Discussed briefly in 2021, but a big discussion the last time was in 2018, was a total disaster. The leaders started drafting a text until the very early hours of the morning that has never been implemented because if there is something that doesn't work is when leaders start drafting texts. So this time there is a pool of Sherpas ready to step in in order to avoid uh, the Sherpas are the officials who work for government, for the Prime Minister's office, uh, that uh, are ready to step in to avoid the disaster of uh, Prime Ministers directly <laughs> drafting uh, the text of the final agreement, but anyway, what's the issue? I mean, what, the, what the, the issues, as usual, ones they are too divisive on, on many of the, the of the core points on migration, like for example, solidarity okay. or responsibility. Both issues are very divisive. Solidarity means uh, how much the other member states should share the flows and the, when there are high flows uh, coming to the EU. How much the others should be able to share these flows? Because Italy and Greece and those countries, for example, on the border, yes, external borders, uh, exactly. are the pe- are the countries that always get. But then there is the other the other leg of the issue, which is responsibility, meaning okay. that these people come in and the countries in the north say, oh, but the countries in the south don't fully register them. Uh, and right. so then they will move where there is a stronger welfare state, so in the north, and it becomes very hard for the countries in the north to send them back because they have not been registered in the country of arrival. This discussion has been going on for 10 years, yeah. and that's the reason why today they were trying to find the consensus on the few things on which they all agree, which is to speed up returns because uh, less than 30% of the migrants whose claims have been rejected are actually returned. To their home countries. To their, to their, own their, countries, to their non-EU starting yes, country. to the third country yeah. where they come from. And then the other issue on which they tried to find the consensus is on the uh, protection of external borders, mm-hmm. which is, uh, uh, of course, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes it's funny because when you see countries like Cyprus signing letters or this time Malta asking for uh, fences, yeah. and these countries are islands, yeah. you ask, you wonder, sorry, which kind of fences you can build in the middle of the sea? Yeah. It's, uh, so the whole uh, migration debate has sometimes some tones and some aspects that are pretty funny, but at the end it's just a long-lasting thing without bringing many results. And that issue of fences, you know, that debate came up last year or the end of 2021 about should EU money be used for building a wall, you know, the Trump-style wall. Although officials say, look, it's not as simple as that. EU money was always used for border management, in effect. Uh, if I remember correctly, the figure there were uh, zero walls uh, 20 years ago. Now we are at around 20. So it's not that there are no walls because the Commission is not funding them. It's plenty of walls across all of Europe. Okay. This is just uh, an issue, a symbolic issue, yes. which is uh, whether the Commission should directly fund the, the walls or only the infrastructure send the, the technology around the wall. But again, it's more symbolism than anything else. But 
but not expecting any big decision, although the debate could get pretty fractious. Uh, not a big decision yeah. today. No. Okay, great. Well, thank you to the three of you for joining me here at the European Council headquarters in Brussels on a, it's a pretty momentous day, it has to be said, with the visit of President Zelensky. So thank you to Barbara, Clea and Jacopo. Thanks for joining. Thanks, thank Suzanne. You. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode, coming to you directly from the European Council in Brussels. Remember to follow EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks this week to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and our editor, James Randerson. I'm Suzanne Lynch. See you next week.